Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far. In order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Most Christian theologians and Christian historians believe that the most important book that's ever been written is the Gospel of Matthew. It was the first book that was accepted as Scripture by the early believers. They would take their Old Testaments and stick the Gospel of Matthew on there. And probably that feeling is because of the Sermon on the Mount, if I just had to guess. I preached through Matthew for 20 years, verse by verse. I just get in the pulpit, one verse after another. 20 years, I got to chapter 26. So it's a great book. There's no doubt about it. A lot of rich material in there. There are some, though, who would say that no, Romans is the most important book ever written. Every revival in the history of the church has been connected with the book of Romans. So however you approach it, Romans is either number one or number two, which is still pretty good when you consider the history of the English language, the history of all language. And it is fascinating to me. Don't miss the lesson of Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Paul, one of the five or six greatest men who ever lived, said, I've been wanting to come to you. I'm sure he prayed about it. But he said, but I've been prevented. In other words, somebody was forcing him not to come. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the reason that we have the book of Romans is because God said no to Paul's prayers. Now, the reason that Romans is so important is because it is the only one of Paul's writings that has all of his doctrines in it. It was the only church he wrote to that he hadn't been to. He'd been to the churches in Galatia. He'd been to Ephesus, Philippi. He'd been to Colossae. All the other churches he wrote to, he'd already been there. And therefore, he did not have to put all of his teachings in a book because he'd been there. But when it came to the book of Romans... He hadn't gotten to go there. Now, he would three years from now, but he's not sure. He can't be sure about the future. And so, in the book of Romans, Paul puts everything, all of his doctrines are here. That's why it's such a great book. It is all of Paul in one book. And so, we can safely say, boy, that was great. When God said no to Paul's prayer. Boy, God blessed the church at Rome when he said no to Paul. God blessed us all when he said no to the prayer of Paul. But the lesson of verse 13 is, can you say great when God says no to your prayer? It's easy for you to say, boy, that's great when he said no to Paul or great for the Romans, but can you say no? You see, one of the things you have to learn as a believer is that God answers every prayer that you make. One of the greatest mistakes we make in our talking, we say, God answered my prayer when he says yes. That's only one-third true. God answers your prayer when he says no, and God answers your prayer when he says wait. And yes, he encourages us. And no, 
He protects us. And in wait, he forces us to keep coming to him. So let us be careful when we say, God answered my prayer. And we only mean that he said yes. Because either the greatest or the second greatest book that has ever been written was written because God said no. Have you thanked the Lord lately for something you've prayed for? That he said no? Now verse 14. Verse 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Debtor. He said, I'm in debt to all the Greeks. Most beautiful language in the ancient world. We should be grateful the New Testament was written in Greek. The richest language in, from the ancient world. Beautiful language. So there were those who spoke Greek. And then there were the rest of them. That's the barbarians. No matter what language you had, the Greeks were kind of a little bit puffy about that. They loved their language. So Paul is saying, I'm in debt to everybody that speaks Greek. And everybody that doesn't speak Greek. And then he says, I'm also in debt to everybody that's wise and everybody that's foolish. Whether they're learned or unlearned, whether they're cultured or crude, civilized or uncivilized. In other words, Paul, since he was in debt to every human being he ever met. Now, when I ask you a question, do you feel in debt to the Russians? Good question, isn't it? Do you feel any sense of debt that you need to be making a payment? Is someone from China? What about someone from North Korea? Do you feel that you owe a debt? What in the world is Paul talking about? How in the world? A debt to every human being? What is he saying? It certainly goes contrary to what we've been taught and the way we've been, we've been raised. From the time you were a child in our country, it's self-esteem. You feel good about yourself. You push the top. You can do it. And so what happens is... Often a student graduates from college and says, well, I paid my dues. The world owes me a living. The debutante, who's been taught to have high self-esteem, says the world owes me fame. The successful man, who's been taught that it's all about me, demands the world owes me a hearing. The power broker says the world owes me influence. And the worker says the world owes me a promotion. Many people feel that the world rotates around them. They're taught that from the time they're little children in our culture. We have raised a whole generation of people who think that the world is honored by their presence and owes them. And here comes one of the handful of the most important men who ever lived on the planet, and he upsets this whole apple cart. If the world ever owed anyone anything, it was to Paul. He gave us all to better humanity. And nevertheless, he said, I am the debtor. I owe all of these people. A sense of debt is one of, the, is one of the most driving things in the world. My wife has taken care of our finances for over 40, 45 years. And when we first married, I thought I'd take care of the money. I'm a mathematician by training. And I thought I'll handle the money. And it was a disaster. Hand over to my wife, and for the last 45 years, I, by the way, I did it because of Proverbs 31, which said the woman took care of the business affairs, and I decided, you know what, I'll let my wife take over, and took care of it, and we've done very well all through the years. My wife, before she would get behind on a debt, 
would crawl on her hands and knees to make a payment. There's something about a sense of debt that can drive you to do remarkable things. One of the greatest writers we ever produced, Sir Walter Scott of Scotland, he created the historical fiction genre. Think about that. Walter Scott was totally driven. He always felt like he had to. He just like he was compelled. He was in debt. He just had to do this work. One time he had a terrible fever and he yelled at his servant and said, This is folly. Bring me my pen and my papers. For two years, he was so bad with a kidney ailment that he would bend over groaning all the time. He couldn't even hold a pen and write, so he would dictate. He dictated three of his most famous novels, including Ivanhoe, while he was bent over, doubled in pain. 59, he had a stroke, kept writing. 60 years old, had another stroke, completed two more novels after that. Doctor said, you need to take a Mediterranean cruise. He got on the boat, spent a few days, went back home, and continued that great writing to which we today are so grateful for. Why? Because he had this sense of debt. I got to do this. I, I have to do this. I feel obligation. And that kind of thinking is so foreign to us. And yet, and yet think about it. Every day we enjoy benefits which are ours because of people we never even knew. People who have gone before us. People who served us. People who did certain things, put things in place. Most of us in this room, we did not fight for our freedom. Most of us, of us have not written the laws that we enjoy. Other people worked hard for us and made it possible. Well, what do we do about that? Well, one of the things that we've learned is if you're going to be a great person, if you're going to be successful in the eyes of God, if you're going to live up to being an image of God bearer, then at some point you have to come to the point that you realize you must give more to the world. You must contribute more than you receive. What in the world is going on in the mind of Paul the Apostle? I owe every human being. You know, what is it that he would get on his hands and knees like Ruthie would to pay a debt? What, what is it that he owes? Somehow, somewhere along the way, when he began to realize how much he owed Jesus, and we all share this with him, we know we owe Jesus. We know that we owe the Lord. And, Stand in his presence. And he died for us on the cross. Ruthie always prays that prayer. Thank you for the cross. She always says that. She says, when I get to heaven, if she gets there first, she said, you'll find me at the feet of Jesus holding on saying, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. So we all understand our obligation, our debt to Jesus. But for some reason, Paul understood that I, I can't really do anything for him. I can't give him money. I really can't do anything. He's up there. I'm not. Well, what am I going to do? And somewhere, somewhere along the way, Paul took the debt that he owed Jesus. And he understood. Oh, Jesus wants me to repay him. Through all these people that are going to hell. Wow. There's your contrast. You got Pharisees, you got Sadducees, you got church members, you got pastors, you got all these people. And Paul says, I am in debt to Jesus. I'd crawl on my hands and knees. And how do I pay it? I find some lost people. I find somebody going to hell for whom Jesus died. And I pay my debt to him through them. 
One of my favorite little stories in the Old Testament is Barzillai. David got run off by his son Absalom. Remember, Absalom revolted against David. And, and, Absalom was, and David was caught off guard and he fled. And he would have died. He just starved to death. But there was an extremely wealthy man named Barzillai who found him and fed him and fed his people. And when finally they've won the victory over Absalom and David's coming back, Barzillai stands at the Jordan River and David says, come with me. Come to the palace and live the rest of your lives in luxury. I'll take care of you. I'll be good to you. And Barzillai says, no, I'm 80. I want to go home. But here's my servant. Bless him in my place. So Chimham goes with David. And then before David dies, one of the last things David does, is he says to Solomon, Barzillai was good to me. I owe him. You take care of his sons. I love that. David understood the debt to Barzillai and knew he had to pay it somehow. And even though Barzillai would not let him pay him directly, he still was in debt. He said, so we're going to do it through the ones he chose or he would want us to pay it back to. That's what Paul understood. He understood that you never lock eyes with anybody that Jesus did not die for. That everyone you ever see is blood-bought, blood-cared for, blood-shed over. Every one of them. And you cannot thank Jesus directly by what you do. There's really no way I can get up there and do something. Instead, I must thank Him by helping these people that He loves so much. And I will touch His heart when I touch them. Because we have what they need. We are in their debt. When Pasteur learned that bacteria spread disease, immediately he owed the world. When Edward Jenner discovered the smallpox vaccine, he immediately owed the world. When I was a little boy and Jonas Salk found the polio vaccine, immediately he owed the world. I still remember, I could only have been five or six years old, I still remember standing in line at the Benton Courthouse, Benton, Missouri, in southeast Missouri, to get my polio shot. Jonas Salk. No patent, no profit, nothing. He discovered it, and he gave it away. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I have something. The world is sick. And I have the only thing that can cure them. When I was uh, a young preacher, I read a story about one of Britain's civil wars. And in the civil war, one of the governors was in rebellion against the queen. And the queen sentenced him to death. But his friends interceded. So the queen had mercy and sent a pardon to save his life. But his bitterest enemy got the pardon. And locked it away till the execution was over. I read that story over 40 years ago. And it still just uh, does something to me. And yet, is it not true that there is a way in which we do that? Everyone we see, everyone we know, everyone we run into. Jesus died for them. Jesus cared. We have, we're the only ones. We're their only hope. We are their only We are their only hope. The people that we know and we meet, how many people do you think are going to try to win them to Jesus in their lifetime? I am 70 years old. 
70. And no one has ever walked up to me at a bus station, in a restaurant, in a gymnasium, the park, at the rec center. Never has anyone ever walked up to me and said, by, by the way, are you a believer? Are you a Christ follower? Are you, you know, no one. The only chance that the people you know that are going to hell are going to be saved is for you to realize you owe them. And you would not let your debt at the bank build up. You need to do something about it. But now, and that's not all. No, no, no. If I stopped right there, that, that, that's not all. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Thus, for my part, I am eager. Ah, I love this. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. See, duty can drive you. I mean, duty can be a strong thing. My grandfather, Hill, my mother's daddy, fought in both world wars. He lived by one word, duty. That's it. I mean, his whole life was duty. That's all he did. Duty. I mean, he was focused. Do your duty. That's what you do. And Paul had that. But Paul had something else. He said, I'm thrilled. I, I got to do this. The word eager means out of breath from, from doing something. <laughs> you, you, you've been giving yourself to it. Eager. He said, I, I, I want to do this. I have felt for a long time that the most neglected verse in the New Testament on living the Christian life is Philippians 2.13, which says God not only gives us the power to do what pleases him, but that God gives us the desire. I believe that most Christians, oh God, help me not be a liar. That, that, you're, you're, you're starting too late. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Go back to the start line. You need to pray. Oh, God, make me want to not be a liar. Oh, God, I, I got to win this guy to Christ. I got to at least talk to him about Jesus. And I know it's my duty. I know. God, make me so thrilled and so happy to do this. Give me the desire. Burn in me. That's what was going on with Paul. He said, I owe these people and I'm on fire. I owe them. And I am eager. I want to get there. So you have to have both. Duty without drudgery. Instead, duty with delight. Knowing what you have to do. And then praying for God to make you want to do it so desperately that you are absolutely thrilled. And Paul the Apostle is such a great example of one who mixed both through the rest of his life. Duty, delight. On the road to Damascus, God knocked him down to the ground with a bright light. He's lying flat on the ground. he got to do his duty. He says, what's your name? I love that. I love that little moment. He's knocked to the ground. He said, could we just get the name straight? I'll take it from there, Lord. Who are you? Can you get the name? And then he said, what will you have me do? That's duty. He gets to Damascus, and what does he start doing? He starts preaching. He can't help it. I mean, he's he, he got to tell people that's delight. He's so excited preaching. God said, whoa, 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 Paul, you, you got a lot to learn here, buddy. He sends him down to Arabia, to a desert, for three years. And Paul, who's, who's full of this, I mean, he, he wants to tell people what happened to him. He goes to three years to learn about God. That's duty. He gets stoned almost to death at Lystra. He gets up and goes to the next town. And a few days later, he comes back just to see how the Christians are doing. See, that's delight. 
On his second missionary journey, he's going through Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And he keeps thinking, why isn't God letting me go to where I... He, he wants to go to where he's been before. But somehow the Holy Spirit keeps saying, no, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And finally he gets to the end of Asia in the town of Troas. And he sees a vision. And the man's from Macedonia, right across the river, Europe, right across the, the, the sea. A man from Macedonia says, come and help us. And here's Paul. It's an Asian. Tarsus. Two missionary journeys in the second one. Asia. But he does his duty. And you're in church today because Paul did his duty. He went across that sea. He went to Europe. That's why you're in church today. Because he did his duty. A little bit later, he wants to go to Rome. But he's got an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So he takes the money to Jerusalem. Instead, it's his sheer delight. In my 55 years of ministry, I never read a life story of anyone whose life combined duty and delight better than... Somebody get that for me. Thank you. I never read... Thank you for doing your, your duty and delighting to do it. That's good. All right. All right. Never. Nobody even comes close than to the life story of David Brainerd. I must have read it when I was 25 or 30 maybe. And I've never gotten over it. John, John Wesley was so moved. He forced every Methodist minister in the world to read the diary of David Brainerd. William Carey, our great hero, the first missionary. Brainerd. Yep. Adam Judson, our great Baptist hero. Brainerd. Chalk them up. The men whose lives... Elliot, the great missionary, first translation the Bible into one of the Native American languages. Brainerd was the influence. Now, how is that possible? Brainerd died when he was 29 years old. How do you die when you're 29? And you change the whole face of the earth. How do you do that? When he was 26, he felt a call to go into the wilderness of America and became a missionary to the Delaware Indians. He said, at night I would dream about them. And the day I would get up, I'd think about them. All I could ever think was to try to win them to Jesus. But he got sick. The Delaware Indians would tell the traders, the white traders who would come for the furs and everything later, they would tell the traders of the white man who in the middle of winter would pray in the snow for them until his body was drenching with sweat. And then when he stood up, the blood from his tubercular lungs were in the snow. And they would tell the stories to this man who loved them. Brainerd preached standing up until he finally had to have a chair. Then when he couldn't sit up any longer, the Indians would bring him on a pallet and they'd lie him down in the middle of where they would meet and he would preach to them. When he lost his voice. And all he could do was whisper. He would have one of the Delaware come to him. And he'd whisper in his ear. And then the Delaware would, would speak to all the people. What Brainerd had said. When finally it was obvious he was going to die. The Delaware took him to the home. Of the great preacher Jonathan Edwards. That's how we have the diary. They took him to the home of Jonathan Edwards. And there in the home of Jonathan Edwards. David Brainerd dying. 
fell in love with the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. They loved each other. It's another tragic story unto itself. It's a great study. But Brainerd, he would write letters to the Delaware. When he could no longer write, he couldn't hold the pen. He would dictate to Jonathan Edwards' daughter, and she would write the letters. Jonathan Edwards himself, the great preacher, said that when Brainerd finally slipped into his last coma, and he was mumbling, said he was praying for the Delaware. When the last sentences he ever wrote near death, I declare, now I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world. You want to change the world? You want to do something really extraordinary? Duty. Delight. Debtor. Eager. Have to. Want to. You put them together and you'll do something great. Look what Paul did. Look at verse 15 again. Thus for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. In Rome, he's crazy. Paul's nuts. The man is absolutely, verifiably insane. He's going to go preach in Rome. He's going to come in as a prisoner up the Appian Way. He says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to preach. Oh, and you Romans, the cockiest city in the world, the proudest place on the face of the earth, the most obnoxious place on the planet. Paul says, I'm going to come to your city. And I'm going to tell you, Mr. Caesar, and all your buildings and all your legions and your senate, I'm going to come and tell you that the real king of the greatest empire is a man that your little nobody governor named Pilate, who you don't even know who he was, in a part of the country you don't even hardly know where it is, that man that he killed and put in the grave, that's the real king. That's what you do when you're debtor and you're eager. You do the impossible. You dream dreams that you never thought could happen. But you got to have both. Debtor. Eager. When you put the two together, nothing can stop you. Do you realize that Paul the Apostle walked into Rome? He walked into Rome as a prisoner. You remember the story how he got there. He appealed to Caesar. He's chained. The Christians came 40 miles out to meet him. And then he got a little farther. They came 30 miles out to meet him. And finally he got into the city of Rome. And all he did was preach to them about Jesus. That's all he wanted to do. And 300 years later. Now folks, don't miss this. 300 years later, there were one million seven hundred and fifty thousand Christians buried in the catacombs of Rome. One million seven hundred fifty thousand that we know of by the marks and the symbols, the engravings in the catacombs of Rome. Now, one last thought. Not done. One last thought. Look at verse 16. Then we'll be done. You're not listening fast enough. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Also to the Greek. For in it. In the gospel. 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it's written. The righteous man shall live by faith. Or let me say it. Let, let, let me. You remember the just shall live by faith. The great statement of the Reformation. Let, let me say it in a little different way. Same meaning. But you'll get it when I tell you this. This will change you forever. The one who is just by faith is the one who will live. That's what Luther got. The just shall live by faith. He got it. The ones who are just by faith. The ones who live in faith. The ones who come to know Jesus in a personal way. Individually. Personally. Faith. So Paul's going to go in. And he's going to try to win people. Basically. Just one at a time. There'll be some here. And some there. But the power of God is in the message to the individual. For the individual to believe. I uh, Here's, here's what Paul had learned. He learned where the line between good and evil was. One of the greatest mistakes that American Christians or USA American Christians are making is we are drawing the line between good and evil in the wrong place. Here's what we're doing. Now watch me. Stay with me now. We believe that the line between good and evil is between people groups. Between groups of people. You can draw lines here and, and, and we're good. They're better. A Republican believes that the line between good and evil is drawn between the Republicans and the Democrats, okay? Republicans, they're pro-life, you know, the Republican positions, okay? So they say, okay, here's the problem. The problem is, here's the good guys, there's the bad guys. On the other side, here's the Democrats. And they believe that the line between good and evil is between the groups. They say, okay, here we go. Um, you, you people... You don't support the poor enough. You don't care enough you know, about the welfare and all that kind of stuff. You know? So, so the, the, the theory is that the line between good and evil is between people groups. Here's what Paul understood. Do you understand what he's saying in verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save individuals one at a time. He's saying the line between good and evil is always right straight down the heart of every individual. Every Republican in the world, right here is the line of good and evil. And some days you're going to go this way. And some days you're going to go that way. That's what depravity means. Every Democrat in the world. The line between good and evil is right here. Some days they're going to do good. Act like they're an image of God. And some days they're going to act like they're victims of the fall. Which they are. When you understand where the line between good and evil is. It changes everything. We in USA America. We are convinced Revival is going to come on Air Force One, get the right Congress elected, get the right Supreme Court. Baloney. Phooey. It's not going to happen. Revival is going to come when we begin to realize that the line between good and evil is in every individual. And therefore, if I'm going to win victory, the power of God, the salvation, I've got to look at this lost person and say the, the line between good and evil goes right straight through their heart. And I am in debt to them because I'm the only one probably in their life who's ever going to take time to tell them how to cross the line. Ruthie and I, I was pastor of a big church. God was good to me. I wasn't pastor of as big a church as some of these guys that y'all had this week. I was glad to be in that group. Those are some, those are some big, big dogs, man. I was just a little barking. But they're, they're the big dogs. But I was glad to be here. But, but at one time... In my last church was a nice-sized church. I had 26 ministers that reported to me. 26. 
And so I'd go into staffing room Monday morning, 26 pairs of eyes looking right straight here at me. Well, I mean, it's okay. So it's a big deal. All right. Ruthie and I woke up one day and we realized we didn't have a lost friend in the world. In all of humanity. We were just trying to keep our staff together, save marriages. I mean, we, we were dealing with safe people. So I went to my college minister and I said, Daniel, this ain't right. I, I, I got to do something. I got lost. You've got lots of college students that are lost. We want to start a college group in our house. And so we started a college group five years, had a college group in our house. We'd have them 30 to 55. We'd feed them, take care of them, be good to them. And suddenly we were around a lot of lost people. And we learned, we learned in those years that the power of the gospel is not in politics. You need to be in politics. You need to be a good citizen. I'm not saying don't do that. But you're going you're gonna to fail if you begin to equate what we do politically with the result spiritually. Those are two different realms. Don't ever forget that. The kingdom of Christ is not the kingdom of this world. Yes, you need to be involved in politics. Yes, you need to make right decisions. Yes, you need to vote right. Yes, all those things are right. But the only hope for the world is for us to win as many people as possible across the line between good and evil, pull them to the good side. So I ask you, how are you doing? God said no to one of your prayers lately. Are you okay with that? Have you said thank you for protecting me or you've got a little resentful spirit in you? Do you understand you're a debtor? Do you understand the person you saw last night out at a restaurant or somewhere was drinking a little bit too much and slurred their speech and was a little bit rude and loud? Do you understand that that's your creditor? You owe them? Yeah. Then how are you doing? Are you, are you thrilled? Are you thrilled at the chance? Just God, Philippians 2.13, God, give me the desire. Burn in me. Do this. And then do you understand the significance of one? I've been in the ministry 55 years. And I did pretty good with the many. I, I learned how to value the many. I uh, was pastor of a big church, like I said. And I handled it okay. You know, mega church pastors can be pretty obnoxious, pretty proud. But I handled it okay. When I was young, Ruthie and I went through an experience where we were muscled out of a church. And, and we have felt that we could not have been the pastor of the big church if we had not had that terrible experience when we were muscled out when we were young. That God had to take care of the pride. That the only reason we could be at second was because of the pride. When God had to take care of the pride. So I did okay with the many. My biggest regret five years now into retirement is I'm really struggling with valuing the few. I'm really struggling with trying to win one or two people to Jesus. I really struggle with having just a handful of pastors in my home to minister to. I really struggle with the few. And yet that's exactly what Paul was saying here. Let me in there. Let me at it. I'm going to share a message. You have to receive one person at a time. Just give me a chance. How you doing? That's enough. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes now. Everyone, would you please put all your notes away, put your Bibles away. Now let's just, let's just think for a moment now.
Just us and the Lord in the quiet of this moment before we leave and go home. What in the message kind of stuck you a little bit? You, know, you can't hear a sermon like this without being a little bit offended. You, know, you think, ah. you know, what hit you? I just ask you to pray about it. You know, just take it before the Lord. And then while you pray about something in the message that might have affected you or influenced you, um, you know, there's always a possibility that someone who does not know Jesus. And um, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Now, this prayer doesn't save you. Now, let me let me be very clear. We Christians don't believe in abracadabra and please and thank you. Or we don't believe in uh, uh, over sesame. I mean, that type of stuff. We don't believe in that. So there's no magical prayer that you pray to get saved. So, so, I, so when I, in just a moment, when I lead you in this really simple prayer, the prayer I prayed when I was saved, and the prayer I led my son in, I'm not wanting you to pray it as if that's going to save you. But I've learned that people who are getting close to becoming Christ followers, their minds are going a thousand different directions. Man, do, you, do you realize to become a Christ follower, you have to admit you've been wrong every minute of your life? Whoo! Whoa! So one of the things I've learned is as people get close to receiving Jesus, man, their lives, are, they, they, their brains are going nuts, man. It's, the circuits are blowing every direction. And so I use this little prayer, not as a magical formula, no, but as a way to just kind of help you pull it together. Come on, let's pull it back in. And this prayer will help you say to Jesus from your heart what you really are feeling right now. Then use it. Once again, there's no magic in it, but if it'll help you do it, here it is. I'll pray it out loud and you pray it silently if it'll help you. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.